to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I'm offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website, isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org to follow the science on marijuana. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Today we have a publicly healthy episode and conversation on drugs and addiction. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. My listeners know that I am jealous of infectious disease. I envy COVID, gonorrhea, and monkeypox. I even envy Shigella diarrhea. If we took a public health approach to overdoses, like we do for these many infections, we would save many lives. Dr. Tom Frieden, previous director of the CDC, was featured in High Truth episodes number 78. Several years ago, he published a public health impact pyramid. At the bottom of the pyramid was the socioeconomical impact factors that had the greatest population impact. For drugs, that would be reducing the supply of drugs or primary prevention in preventing people from getting addicted in the first place. At the very top of the pyramid was the smallest impact that required individual efforts. For drugs, it would be getting treatment for the disease of addiction. What if we had this public health pyramid for overdoses and substance use disorder? What if we reduce the supply of drugs like we eradicated mosquitoes to prevent Zika virus? What if we did contact tracing for overdoses like we do for COVID? What if we passed laws that created obstacles to drugs like we do for tobacco? There is a lot of money placed on the drug issues. There are many good intentions. People's heart, I believe, is in the right place, but I argue that the current methods are not working. More Americans than ever are dying. And despite good intentions, perhaps we need to change our current approach. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, Dr. Levin, hi, Truths. My name is Charles Shamish, and my wife and I started the Drug Awareness Foundation, which works on educating people on the dangers of fentanyl. Sadly, fentanyl deaths continue to rise, and our son died four years ago as a result of fentanyl. My question to you is, are deaths from fentanyl considered poisonings or overdoses? And is this distinction important? 
Thank you, Charles. I am so sorry for your loss. I know you make Tyler's memory a blessing through the work that you do along with your wife, Julie. Like you, for Tyler, Jaime Puerta is doing for his son, Daniel. We will ask him your question. Jaime Puerta is president of VOID, V-O-I-D, Victim of Illicit Drugs, a California nonprofit dedicated to educating parents and children on the dangers of illicit drug use and the dangers that abound on social media platform. Jaime became involved in the fight against fentanyl when his only son, Daniel, passed away due to fentanyl poisoning on April 6, 2020, in the middle of the pandemic. Jaime is a United States Marine Corps veteran and small businessman. You can find Jaime Puerta's bio on the High Truth show notes. Jaime Puerta, welcome to High Truths. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. I truly appreciate it. You know, I'm really honored to have you on our program. Jaime, let's start with, tell us about yourself and your family. Uh, my name is Jaime Puerta. I am the president of Void Victims of Illicit Drugs. I am um, a Colombian-American. I was born in Medellin, Colombia, uh, and I was brought to this country in 1962. Um, I am the father of Daniel, who is now my angel in heaven, who uh, passed away due to fentanyl poisoning on April the 6th of uh, 2020. I am married to a beautiful Claudia Elena Ortega Moreno, another Colombian woman uh, who is my rock. Uh, she is my rock, my savior. She's my sage. She's everything to me. And, um, and also very involved with me is uh, my son's mother, Denise Johnson, who's also another angel in my life. Um, and we are here in this space because basically I lost my son, but I'm a Marine Corps veteran. I'm a, I am a uh, Harley Davidson enthusiast. When I have the opportunities to ride my motorcycle, I, I ride with, um, uh, with a riding club of all Marines um, called the Brotherhood of Marine Corps Riders out of Temecula. I haven't seen them probably in about four months because I've just been so busy working with the foundation, but um, and that's my uh, psychological therapy, quite frankly, riding my motorcycle. There's nothing more beautiful than riding a motorcycle along the beautiful Pacific coast of California. It's just very refreshing. And and so anyways, yeah, that's basically me. Yeah. Well, thank you for your service. And, and tell us a little bit about Daniel, your angel. Uh, Daniel... Um, um, Daniel was born on April 25th of 2003. He was a very uh, deep kid. He was a, I knew from the very get-go, he was, he was something special. And I say that not only as a father, but it's just that, you know, he was one of those kids who wanted to know everything. He, he wanted to know about astrology. He wanted to know about spirituality. He, uh, he was a child who, at first, uh, very, very shy, uh, painfully shy. And, um, you know, from in school, from first to sixth grade, he was A's and B's, uh, principal's awards, everything like that. Mm, after uh, uh, puberty, uh, I would say probably about 11 or 12 years old, we noticed a change in him where he wasn't so much interested in school. He really didn't like Common Core, where he had to explain everything to the teachers because he was the type of kid who would come up with the answers in his head. So he was very lazy in that sense that he didn't want to have to write out the whole answer to a math problem or something like that. He would just do it in his head. But anyways, 
He was the kind of kid who would take his shirt off his back to help another. Uh, he had more friends that were girls than were boys because according to them, uh, and I can tell, I can say their names on, but like Sammy and Sam and Paige and all of them, they said that he was just uh, the best hugger, the best boy to go to for boyfriend advice. And, um, and they absolutely adored and loved him. Uh, so that was Daniel in a very deep, very spiritual, uh, a fantastic son. Uh, I couldn't have been more blessed to have uh, a son in Daniel like I did. I mean, quite frankly, I'm, I know I, it's difficult for people to understand when I say this statement, but I had him for 16 and a half years. And I feel so blessed that I was able to be his father and I, he chose me to be his father. And, uh, and I still feel, even though he's not with me anymore, I still feel like I'm the most blessed man in the world, quite frankly. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. What was his journey with drugs? So Daniel, um, um, started, uh, so, okay, let me go back a little bit. After he had lost uh, interest in school, basically, I had to put him in summer school and in sixth grade, seventh, no, seventh grade, eighth grade, and ninth grade. He just wasn't interested in school. He had really become even more introverted, more shy. Uh, we had taken him to doctors um, to see what was going on with him. I We really couldn't get a diagnosis, and we didn't get a a, di a true diagnosis for him until probably um, uh, late 2017, early 2018, when he was diagnosed with ADHD and severe depression. And in summer school in ninth grade, he was a big kid. He was six foot, six foot one, weighed 210, 215 pounds at the time. And one of the uh, his teachers at um, at Canyon Country High School called me and said, look, you know, your kid is huge. He has to play football. Let's put him on the football team. And I was trying to motivate Daniel to do something. He just, I couldn't motivate him to do anything. I had him in soccer before. I had him in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, I had him in flag football. He really took to the idea of playing tackle football for his, uh, for his high school, which was Hog Saugus High School. And he played his freshman year there. Absolutely loved it. You know, popular kid, uh, you know, great friends, uh, girls, everything. But after that football season was over, he started experimenting uh, with marijuana and that quickly delved into uh, a problem um, with Xanax. So wanting to get him help, I, we truly couldn't do anything because of the state of California had I wanted to check him into a rehab or something like that, he could have checked himself out without, uh, you know, just on his own, even though he was a minor. On top of that, you know, trying to see what kind of, uh, what his intake was, uh, the health provider would not release his uh, urine analysis to me because they claimed HIPAA. I, I just, I won't talk about that because it's, it's, it drives me crazy. But that being said, um, we came head, it, it, it got to a, a point where uh, we knew he needed help. We didn't know what to do. Uh, so his mother and I finally came to the decision to uh, send him to uh, a place in Kanab, Utah called uh, 
uh, Wingate Wilderness Therapy for two months. And it was probably the best thing that could have ever happened to him because, oh my gosh, we got that kid back. I mean, it's, 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 there's some uh, controversies over these camps where they say they work the kids too much or things like that. But basically what it was, it was a wilderness camp and he got there and they gave him his clothes. They gave him a backpack, uh, uh, a tarp, a sleeping bag, the ingredients to food, not even matches or anything. They taught him how to start his own fires, rubbing the sticks together and things like that. And he was with other boys who were having problems as well whether it be discipline, whether it be for drugs, for uh, self-harm, whatever the reason was, parents, I think in their last ditch efforts or wanting to do something for their children, send them to this place. And he came back from there in November of 2018. And uh, it was like night and day, you know, uh, he didn't party anymore because of his um, attitude before with school. He had fallen behind about 13 to 14 months of school so i pulled him out of his high school and put him in a place called a charter school called opportunities for learning he caught up to his grade uh, there was absolutely no drug use whatsoever and uh for quite some time and then the pandemic hit and basically uh the pandemic uh i think i believe the pandemic really uh messed him up because he wasn't able to be with his friends anymore. He wasn't able to uh, spend as much time with his girlfriend as before. Uh, isolating in his bedroom, doing his homework six, seven hours a day via Zoom. Uh, it just really, I think it just really put him in a dark place uh, psychologically, quite frankly. So um, on the evening of March 31st, he asked me if he could take our, our, his dog really, but I was the one always cleaning up after the dog, but <laughs> you know how kids can be. Uh, he asked me if he could take Birdie for a walk, which I found very, very strange. And I said, sure, son, go ahead. And he went, he came back 10 minutes later. And that evening was just like one of the most special and beautiful evenings I ever had with him. And, uh, uh, it was just, uh, there was something about that evening that was just so special. He had found a disc with his pictures of his third birthday party and we were laughing about it. He hugged me. He gave me a kiss on the cheek. And he actually said to me, he goes, dad, you know what? I'm so sorry for all the stuff that I had put you through in the past. And he goes, it must've been really difficult for you or hard. And I go, you know what, Daniel, you know, you're a teenager. You're going to make mistakes. I understand it. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's how we learn. You know, we learn by our mistakes and you're on a new journey and you're doing fantastic. You're doing great. Just keep it up. And he goes, okay, dad, we had dinner and we, I always kissed him on the cheek, he kissed me on the cheek. We always got that hug before going to bed. He said, good night. And on April the 1st, when I walked into his bedroom, I saw what no parents should ever have to see. And that's their kid who had basically passed on. He had very shallow breathing. He was in his bed in an upright position against the headboard with his arms crossed over his chest. And he had a tint of blue on I, It was just, it was horrific. So, yeah. I'm so sorry. And, and what killed him? I found out afterwards, um, 
so they had taken him first to Henry Mayo Hospital here in Santa Clarita, and then afterwards they took him to Los Angeles Children's Hospital. A wonderful organization, by the way. But I had found, I had come back that night, the first night, and I went into his room and I had found half a, what looked like, because I did my research afterwards, but it, what it was is it looked like a blue M30 oxycodone bill. That's what he thought he was taking. Uh, but what it truly was after an analysis done by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Santa Clarita office, they had sent it off to a lab for, um, they'd send it off to a lab for, to do an analysis on it. And there was no medication in it whatsoever. It was just binder and fentanyl. And that was it. There was nothing else in there. And that's what killed them. So uh, calling into high truths um, for this episode is Charles Seamus. Charles also lost his son, Tyler, to fentanyl. Um, and he asks, is there a difference between calling the death a fentanyl overdose um, or fentanyl poisoning? Um, how do you consider that for, for Daniel? That's an excellent question, Dr. Lem and, and Mr. Shamash. Thank you for that question. I think the whole premise behind the difference between an overdose and a poisoning is in the intent. Right. So if if my son intended to take an oxycodone pill, but in reality was given a fake pill, a cloned pill, a pill, a pill made to look exactly like a pharmaceutical grade oxycodone, but in reality was a fentanyl, then I would call that a poisoning. I call it murder. Well, <laughs> yeah. yes. Thank you. And we are on the same page and, and we're very lucky that we have some very courageous district attorneys in in uh, Southern California and in Northern California that are starting to, even in San Francisco with uh, District Attorney Brooke Jenkins, who is uh, a Democrat uh, who took over Chesa Boudin, who was ousted from that office. Um, but they're starting to now... Uh, levy murder in the second degree charges against drug dealers who sell this nefarious poison to children. You know, I, I think another way of looking at it is, is which makes it a little bit more clear for people is uh, I'm 60 years old. Uh, I don't know if people will remember this or not, but in 1982, seven people in the city of Chicago had purchased extra strength Tylenol. Even the parents had bought and had bought extra strength Tylenol for a child. And all seven of those people who had consumed the extra strength Tylenol died. Did they die because they had taken too much extra strength Tylenol or did they die due to the fact that the Tylenol had been tainted with potassium cyanide? This is exactly the same thing. The Mexican drug cartels are deceiving our children into buying what they believe are pharmaceutical pills when in reality, they are cloned pills, they are fake pills, they are counterfeit pills made of binder and fentanyl. Now, they're not trying to kill our children. What they're trying to do is try to get them addicted because once they have them addicted, they have a client until that client finally passes away, which is another thing about fentanyl. And you as a doctor, probably, of course, you know this, is that 
once you ingest fentanyl for the first time, three and a half, four hours after the fact, it, it you want to do it again. You want to chase that high, whether you like it or not. It's 50 to 100 times more powerful than morphine or heroin, that much more addicting. You can't even find heroin anymore in the tenderloin or skid row or in Venice Beach. Everybody is, all these addicts now are consuming fentanyl or methamphetamine. So there's a big difference between poisoning and, and, and overdose. Overdose is if, I, is if I know what I'm taking, but I unfortunately take too much of it and I pass away, that would be considered to be an overdose. But if I'm buying what I think is a, or even if I'm a recreational drug user and I buy cocaine and somebody puts fentanyl in that cocaine because they want me to become addicted that much more quicker and I pass away, like the three comedians in, in Venice uh, Beach uh, earlier this year, that's definitely a poisoning. I agree with you. And the CDC, when they do their mortality data, they don't make a differentiation. It's all called overdosed. And for statistical purposes, they probably can't make that distinction. So for statistics... I understand why everything is called an overdose. They, they really can't differentiate. But as a clinician, as a doctor who treats patients, I want the right diagnosis. And the right diagnosis matters because how you apply prevention and treatment depends on the diagnosis. So if, if you say overdose, that's for just like you said, uh, Jaime, people who have an opiate use disorder. Um, they intended to use fentanyl. They have an opiate use disorder, and with that diagnosis, they need addiction treatment, treatment with medications for opiate use disorder or other means. But people who are being poisoned or killed by um, fentanyl may have no opiate use disorder. They may not have a substance use disorder. They may be experimenting um, like Daniel was, or like you mentioned with the cocaine, have a substance use disorder to a different drug completely, and they're being tricked into buying fentanyl, and that's poisoning or, like I've mentioned, even murder, because that's not what the person intended to do. I like the murder. Um, I, like, I like how you say that because a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Kevin Pelton, uh, he text messaged me uh, and he said, you know what, Jaime, people who get shot don't ask to get shot. And yet we prosecute the people who shoot them for murder. People who are being poisoned by fentanyl are not asking for fentanyl. And they're being poisoned. So why aren't we prosecuting those drug dealers for murder as well? And that's a great point. You know, the grand majority of these kids or these are young adults who are dying due to fentanyl and fentanyl, you know, poisoning. They're not asking for the fentanyl. You know, we, we live in an overmedicated society where children find the magic elixir in a pill and they don't know any better. Nobody is giving them the information that they need so they can make wise decisions. You know, so when they go and they go onto online platforms like Snapchat or or Instagram or Meta or something like that, buy what they believe is a pharmaceutical grade opioid, but in reality is a cloned pill, you know, and it's fentanyl and they die. That's murder. That's definitely murder and should be murder in the first degree. Right. Especially young kids who, you know, you know, kids make mistakes. Kids experiment, but it's just not fair 
<laughs> the punishment is just dying. Well, right. And then, and, then, and then we have this other problem with due to the stigma of addiction and overdose, anytime somebody dies or a child dies due to fentanyl poisoning, most families think that this could never happen to them because either they don't have anybody in their families who are using drugs on a recreational basis, or they don't have anybody who's addicted to drugs in their family. And, you know, children are left to their own devices. I mean, we have drug dealers openly on Snapchat on these phones, and they haven't been able to get them off of their platforms. All the drug, most of the drug dealing has gone from brick and mortar buildings onto social media apps like Meta, Snapchat, Instagram. And these are where our children are at. And many times, you know, not, not to any fault of their own, but what I have learned, you know, there was actually, uh, let me say this, Dr. Left, there was a study done where they asked children between the ages of 11 and 17, who their biggest influence in their lives were. And there was three answers that they could choose from their parents, their teachers, or their friends, which of the three was the biggest influence in their lives. What friends. do you think they answered? Friends. Of course, they're friends. And you, we're talking about friends who are the same age, who have their brains are not fully developed yet. You know, they're going to make dumb decisions. And unfortunately, it's those dumb decisions that can cost the life of a child. And that's what most parents don't understand. Your kid, whether you like it or not, sooner or later is going to want to experiment or is going to be put in a position where peer pressure is going to want that child or that child to take a drug. Even now, and we know, for example, uh, the multiple deaths that are happening, but everybody's hush-hush about is about our kids who are in colleges who take Adderall so they can focus more and study and 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 keep up with their schoolwork. You know, we hear stories across the nation. You know, that young lady who was studying to be a doctor at Ohio State University who died because she took a fake Adderall. I mean, these stories are rampant everywhere. Straight A student, scholarship, good to go family. You know, I mean, it's the same thing. It's like my friend uh, Chris Didier, his son, Zachary Didier. You know, straight A student only missed two points off of the sat uh, off of the. Uh, college entrance exams had been already uh, accepted to UCLA track star in the drama club girlfriend, just this, this shining light of an example of a kid that I think most people would like, Oh my God, thankfully I don't have any problems with my child. And this, you look at this kid and, and he's dead because of a, a fentanyl poisoning. So if you think that it can't happen to you, I'm so sorry, but you're sorely mistaken. It can happen, and it is happening, and it's happening at an alarming rate. If you look at the drug deaths in 2020 to 2021, what did we have? 94,000-plus deaths in the United States due to drug deaths in 2020. 75% of those were due to fentanyl and fentanyl-related substances. In 2021, we had 107,661 drug deaths in the United States. Um so the, the, the reason Charles is, and yeah, those those numbers are st staggering, just like uh, people can't even think. I mean, again, number one cause of deaths uh, in our country, more than COVID in ages 18 to 45. But I think Charles's question is so important because if you consider all those, you know, 60, 70,000 deaths, overdoses, you could come up with the wrong conclusion that we need more 
opiate use disorder treatment for all that population. But that's not true. because there, It's true for a select amount of those people. But kids like Daniel and many others, the message and treatment is very different. It is about uh, knowledge of counterfeit pills and that there is no safe drug supply out there unless you buy something from directly from a pharmacy that's FDA approved. There's no safe drug supply. And so the, the message is different depending on the correct diagnosis. Well, you know, I was at the White House and we had a meeting with the UNDCP there. And I, and I said to their faces, I go, whatever you guys are doing, it, you're not hitting the mark. You're not. Yet there's a definite disconnect between our federal and state legislatures and the education that is not being given. There is absolutely no drug education anymore in our high schools. And the coalitions that are out there are more, you know, I understand vaping is a problem. I understand alcohol is a problem in our teens and things like that, but that's not what's killing them. Fentanyl is killing them. It's a very important distinction too. When we talk about an overdose, it also gives law enforcement a pass practically. Right. Like why investigate an overdose? Why investigate a murder? You'll investigate a murder, but you will not investigate an overdose. One of the first things that happened when Daniel died, and I found out what was in the, in his that toxicology report that they had gotten back from that pill, and the detective came to my home and he go, "Mr. Puerta, we're so sorry, uh, but your son died of an overdose." Uh, and I go, "Really?" And I go, "You know, well, explain to me, please, how a sixteen and a half year old kid." who takes half a pill overdoses on oxycodone. Well, it wasn't oxycodone. Like I said before, it was fentanyl. I go, exactly. And then he looked at me very strangely. And then did, all of that. Did they investigate properly? Did they take his phone and try to track the dealer? They took his phone. They did an investigation. There is an investigation, but they haven't been able to open the phone. They have kind of like a suspect, but that being said, they're telling me that the person who they think did it will never be prosecuted because he was a minor when he sold it to Daniel and that uh, our district attorney, George Gascon, would never. Uh, but do they go upstream to where the other, you know? They haven't told me anything, quite frankly, Dr. Leff. I, I really don't know. I, and I'll be quite honest with you. At first, I really wanted to know who it was because as a Marine, I, you know, <laughs> I want to know who did this to my son. But as time went on, uh, I've evolved um, to the point where I think it's more important for me, personally speaking. Um, I'm not so interested anymore on the fact of, of getting justice for my son. I'm more interested in spreading the word and education and awareness in our high schools, in our junior high schools, about the scourge that is decimating so many people. That's a healthier, a healthier place to be, Jaime. I think so too. What well, you know, one of the first things that myself and my partners did with our organization is we started meeting with our county sheriffs. With all five, we saw we were in San Diego at the time. We met with Sheriff uh, Gore. Gore at the time, he's now retired. We met with Sheriff Gore and and Kelly Martinez, who was his under sheriff. We met with Alex Villanueva. We we met with Chad Bianco. San Bernardino, um, uh, Mr. McMahon, uh, we went to Imperial County. I forgot what that sheriff's name was, but five parents, all with dead children, with pictures of our dead children, spoke in a conference room setting 
with the sheriffs and their staff of who our children were and not to pat ourselves on the back or anything like that, but, you know, because of them seeing the face of, of the crises front, uh, they basically, I, I guess when you're, uh, when you're a police officer or when you're in law enforcement and you see so many of these cases, I just think that it numbs the mind and they're not able to discern the difference between what an overdose looks like or what a poisoning is. But when you walk into the bedroom of a 16 year old child who does not suffer from substance use disorder, who's not addicted to drugs, who's going to school, who has a girlfriend, he's got his life on track and everything like that, finds him dead. Well, I think that, you know, they have to do the investigation. And that's basically what they did. LA County Sheriff, they, they've come up with new new policies and procedures of how to investigate these deaths. I know Chad Bianco in Riverside is, uh, has uh, uh, cases uh, that have been, or charges levied against drug dealers for murder in the first or second degree. I know that San Bernardino has done not say, so Southern Cal Placer County has as well up in Northern California. Um, uh, so, I, it's a step in the right move. So, you know, but it, that's just the thing. Again, due to the stigma of addiction and overdose, if they continuously call these overdoses, um, a lot is not going to be done. From what I understand and what I've been told, there's a medical examiner in Pennsylvania that goes out of uh, his way and calls these fentanyl poisonings and murder on the death certificates. Wow. But, so that's... You know, that's a step in the right direction. I would love to meet whoever the medical examiner's association may be or something like that. There are so much to be done in this space, Dr. Lev, all the way from ICD codings, you know, uh, diagnosis codings of deaths, uh, death certificates, and and so many other things. You know, how many parents, uh, well, I won't get into that, but, you know, it's just, it's there's a lot to be done. And unfortunately, it takes parents. You know, it's it's parents who start own foundations when they, their kid has been killed by fentanyl. You don't see the federal government doing these outreach programs like we are. I mean, they are, but they're they're very vanilla, I guess you might want to. I mean, they're just not they're not powerful enough to really shake the people. You're, people you're not I, seeing the effect of them. I even though they're pouring billions of dollars when it comes down to your family and your neighborhood, you're not seeing an effect, despite all the money that's being poured into the problem. The three things that we have to understand, fentanyl changes everything, but for fentanyl, our children and our loved ones would still be here. And I'm sorry, somebody's calling me. And fentanyl is a problem that most don't seem to know or understand. So, you know, it, 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 that's why it's so important to get this information is education and awareness into the high schools because we're not going to arrest our way out of it as much as i would love to you know um but so you you established a nonprofit void victims of illicit drugs what's the goals for your nonprofit we're we 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 were formed to bring to the public's attention, education, awareness, legislative advocacy, uh, and the immediate danger related to the sudden death of these children due to fentanyl poisoning. That's our basic uh, foundation. That's what we do. Uh, we work a lot with the federal, not in, we don't work with, we used to work 
in wanting to help our state legislators trying to get laws passed in the state of California, but it's virtually impossible, impossible to get anything out of the Senate Public Safety Health Committee that is chaired by Senator Stephen Bradford and uh, 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 I wouldn't even talk about them because I, 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 I got one I got one bill passed, but it it, it it went through, I don't know if you know about it, but SB 864, it's now Tyler's Law, signed by the governor. It received bipartisan support with very little opposition, um, and it will require fentanyl to be included in all the drug testing. And it's meant to bring the medical community more to the table, because if we don't see data, we don't realize the problem. Um, so, uh, starting with Kelly Shamash, right? With, did you, uh, Ma uh, Senator Melissa Melendez. Oh, Senator Melissa Melendez. But yeah. So starting in January, 2023, anytime a drug screen is ordered in a hospital setting, it'll include fentanyl. Again, it won't answer, it won't solve the problem, but it'll engage the medical community, um, in, in solutions. It's a step in the right direction. And thank you for doing that, Dr. Liff. I think that's yeah. awesome that you did that. Congratulations. I, I feel that's uh, very important. You know, my son's death certificate, um, cause of death is major organ failure, possible drug toxicity. So think about that. Possible drug toxicity? Possible drug toxicity. So my son doesn't even show up as a, as a fentanyl poisoning statistic in Los Angeles County. I don't understand that, but... If he doesn't show up as a statistic, okay, how many more are going or flying under the radar? How many more deaths are going under the radar that we don't know about? I, I yeah, I know you have to spend your energy where where it counts and talking to the medical examiner. You know, they, this it's not as you see um, these diagnoses are not perfectly accurate. Correct. So, you know, one of the things that we've uh, started doing with our documentary and we have had a lot of people reach out to us due to the documentary. Tell us about that. The, the dead on arrival. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Tell us about that. That's, that's, it's a, a must watch for anybody listening to this po podcast is the documentary dead on arrival by uh, Dominique Tierno. So tell, tell us about how you got involved with that. So Amy Neville, who's my dear friend, uh, her son, Alexander Neville, died in uh, June of 2020. And uh, we fast became friends. And uh, I drive her crazy. Uh, she knows this, but we work together. And um, last year in 2021, uh, she reached out to me and to Mr. Steve Filson and Matt Capilotto and said that, uh, a producer whose name is Christine Wood, who does producing on part-time. Uh, she worked with Dominic Tierno and they wanted to, uh, they wanted to film a documentary on the crisis of fentanyl because nobody was addressing it. Nobody was talking about it. And there was nothing out there to warn parents about the scourge. So she asked us if I wanted to, she asked me if I wanted to be a part of it. I said, absolutely. Yes. So we jumped on an airplane, I believe in June or July of and we flew to Eagle, Idaho, and we got an Airbnb where myself and the other three and Steve Filson and Matt and Amy stayed at. And 
The documentary was shot basically on a weekend. Uh, the O'Connell found uh, the uh, the O'Connell Foundation from uh, Orange County uh, paid for it, and the way they had done it was basically um, they made it with no copyrights attached to it. So in other words, there are no copyrights to it, so that people could share it far and wide and so they could use it also for so other organizations could use it also for their drug prevention conferences or outreach or education or awareness just so long as they didn't co-brand it in other words you know put their 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 logo on the documentary uh, making it look like they had produced it and and try to do like these drip campaigns or money for it so anyways it was it was it was launched and myself and the other members of void uh took that documentary and uh shared it absolutely everywhere parents started watching it but it really started taking off approximately about a month and a half ago where we've gotten over 25,000 views on it just in the last month uh 25 or 30,000 views and the reason being was well one I, i'm not to pat myself on the back but i i always when i always do the interviews on fox or on cnn or everywhere you got to watch dead on arrival you got to watch dead on arrival all the podcasts that i go on dead on arrival dead on arrival um i push it hard because when people watch that documentary they really understand exactly the scope of the crises and make and makes people now understand it breaks the barrier of stigma of addiction goes to the heart of the problem of what is happening in our nation in every single community in the united states it opens up their eyes people are shocked uh people cry with us uh and i understand that but it really puts it in a perspective that it you know you really truly understand after you watch that documentary you truly understand what's happening and then parents grab their kids and they sit down and watch it with them but like i said just in the month this past month has happened what's really opened up this conversation is the rainbow fentanyl that, that has now infiltrated uh, our communities and we we have now heard of the first deaths i think the first one that i had heard about was in hayes county in texas I believe it was a 12-year-old boy who had oh. passed away due to the fact that he had taken a, a fentanyl pill that looked like a sweet tart. Uh, that's what they call them, like these sweet tarts, uh, you know. And it's it's happening, and, and it looks like at Bernstein High School with uh, Melanie Ramos, and also a young lady from uh, Nogales High School out of La Puente, California. She died the day after. And these pills are making their rounds. And and so the cartels now, you know, the thing is, is that when fentanyl first started coming in to the country, it was really isolated to that substance use community when they were adding the fentanyl onto heroin and methamphetamine. But due to the fact that in 2014, when prescribing procedures in the United States had changed as far as opioids went, you know, I, I don't know if you remember this, Dr. Lev, you get a tooth pulled and they would give you 30 or 60. I, 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 I unfortunately used to be one of those doctors and I, I was also one of the early ones to reform. Very good. Thank you for that. Uh, in 2014, when everything changed around, it left, it left a lot of addicts high and dry. So they had two choices, either become, get clean, or a lot of them, unfortunately, went to heroin. And then that's when it gave the opportunity. These cartels saw an opportunity and said, well, 
here's a whole other segment of society that we can reach. Why don't we just start pressing our own pills and make them look like the opioids and then we'll sell them through social media apps like Snapchat. And that's exactly what happened. And that's when you see the, the death rate just skyrocketing. And then also made it available to these kids to know, uh, you know, they had no idea. They go onto these social media apps and they buy these pills. But anyways, um, so you have a picture behind you of uh, Snapchat. Is that is that how Daniel got his M30? Yes. And 90, 90 to 92% of all the parents that I've spoken to have lost their children, um, uh, bought it from Snapchat as well. And we have had conversations with Snapchat. And they keep, uh, I won't say any bad words on your podcast. Let me just say they're just giving us a lot of lip service. Yeah. Let's just so they don't it. they don't take responsibility they don't take accountability any they pre, they blanket themselves with section 230c protections so section 230c was a law written back in 1996 by our federal legislatures that basically uh, uh, guaranteed free speech on the internet and and but it's a very broad law and so they protect themselves with that but um, but if it was murder then maybe it'd be different right if it was murder it would be different um you know we've i i wonder you know you you mentioned stigma a few times and i'm wondering if the word stigma can be i mean can be working against the issue in a certain way oh absolutely so you don't want stigma to the human being to a person who has an illness that person does not deserve stigma but those Tart candies, those deserve stigma. Yes. Right? That's and why. selling those tart candies on Snapchat deserve to stigma. Dr. Lev, I have been attacked in the last week. People calling me these, these extreme harm reductionist uh, 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 organizations, like people from the Drug Policy Alliance uh, and other people uh, personally that are in this space. I won't mention their name because I, I won't give them the notoriety the notoriety on your podcast, but they're telling me like, how dare you uh, warn, you know, and what I was told was, well, the reason why the drug cartels are making the these pills now and these colored, the rainbow fentanyl pills, the reason why they're doing it is because they want to make sure that people understand how dangerous they are. Okay, is that why a twelve-year-old takes it and thinks it's a pop? Exactly. Yeah, I, I, a nurse contacted me from Palm Springs. She put out a TikTok video that went viral. In the space of twenty-four hours, eleven people had gone to her emergency room, where she was at at the hospital, where eleven people had been poisoned. Six of them under the age of fifteen, all due to the rainbow fentanyl all due to the rainbow fentanyl pills. Well, you stay strong. I mean, there, there is, you know, as we know, there is a, a divided America, a very uh, politically divided, ideologically divided, and, and even something as uniting, I would think, as the issue of drugs, there, there is a division. And you're, you're running into folks who want to normalize drug use that believe that, hey, I can have a drink of alcohol. Why shouldn't I be allowed to have a line of cocaine? 
Um, you know, not everybody drug, you, dies from drugs. And they, they push to normalize drug use, you know, with cannabis and, and magic mushrooms and everything else. Um, that's not FDA approved um, for cre- recreational use. And, um, and then there's a different philosophy that I think that you share where it's more important to save lives and, and to have a public health approach in saving lives. We have a public health approach for COVID and monkeypox and Shigella diarrhea. I, I think that we should have a public health approach when it comes to drugs. I don't know how many people have died due to monkeypox in this nation, but the government did declare it a health crisis. I don't understand why they don't feel like 80,616 fentanyl fentanyl drug deaths and fentanyl-related substance drug deaths are not a public health crisis. I don't understand that. I never... A little insulting. It's insulting to every single parent. But you know what? I think it comes down to parents and the power of parents. And Jaime, and that's where you come in and your organization and other parents who can be united. Because the the community that was affected by monkeypox yelled out and their voices were heard. And power to them for getting that done. But the parents need to do that too. Dr. Lev, we have been yelling yeah. to the keep, top of our lungs and they're keep, not listening. Keep, keep it up. I will. We <laughs> will always keep it up. It's and not okay. It's and not and okay. as speaking of yelling, you went to Washington, D.C. Um, um, and uh, to the, uh, and right in front of the, the White House um, with parents from the entire um, country and to protest. Tell us about that experience. Well, I wasn't there this year. It was impossible for me to go this year. Um, um, it was impossible for me to go this year. There's a gentleman here in Los Angeles who lost his son uh, due to fentanyl poisoning, and uh, he's too busy to get into the fight, but he wanted to organize a fundraiser for us. So he did that. So we were at our fundraiser for Void. We were all you know, Void is basically we, we, myself and Steve Filson, uh, and you know, we've put our own money in there, and 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 the other board members have as well. And so we raised a, a good amount of money, thankfully. Uh, so I wasn't able to go through it this year, but this is an organization that's called um, uh, Lost Voices of Fentanyl that is headed up by April Babcock and Virginia Krieger. Uh, every organization is rowing in the same direction as far as awareness and education, but everyone does it a little bit differently. So what they do is they have like 22,000 affected families on their Facebook page. Every uh, This is the second year that they've done a protest uh, where uh, they started out at the National Mall and, and they had speakers uh, like Mr. Derek Maltz. Um, Jim Raw, I think, who also spoke there, uh, who's a good friend. I love Jim Raw. He was wanting to get that uh, weapons of mass destruction. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. He was able, Jim, and we have a podcast with Jim, Families Against Fentanyl, and he was able to trace his son's death to the dealer right in China, which was uh, amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. He's an amazing man. He's an amazing father. He's a fantastic friend. I love him. I try to talk to him at least once a month. Anytime I see him come up on Fox, I call him to congratulate him and, and, and getting the word out there or when he's meeting like with the attorney general uh, down in Florida where they had a big meeting and what they wanted to declare fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. I called him immediately to congratulate him. He does the same for me. 
again, we all are rowing boats in the same direction of wanting to abate drug deaths in the United States because it's not, you know, it, it's not, <laughs> parents should not be, and I get a little emotional, and I'm sorry, but parents should not be burying their their children. You know, it, it's supposed to be the, the other way around where they're supposed to bury us. And so, you know, again, Lost Voices of Fentanyl, headed up by April Babcock. She's the founder of and the president of Virginia Krieger. They do the protest once a year. Uh, Jim Ron with the Weapons of Mass Destruction. Void Victims of Illicit Drugs. You can find us at stopthevoid.org. Our whole angle or what we do is education. We are finally getting into the high schools, Dr. Lev. We have been touring the country. We're in Colorado. I'm going to Pennsylvania next week and then to Wichita, Kansas, to all the high schools out there, uh, Florida, New Jersey, uh, New York. Uh, they're calling us uh, at here, Los Angeles. We have drug, we've partnered up with uh, District Attorney uh, Summer Steffen on October the 12th. We're, we're, we're having a, a conference, <coughs> excuse me, um, in San Marcos, California, you should go to that. I'll send. I you think I was invited to speak. I hope you go. I'd love to see you in person and meet you in person. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we'll be there. So we're very, very busy, and at the same time, trying to hold my business up. Uh, I mean, I have to make money, and so I have to work. So I can't. I can't. I wish I could dedicate a hundred percent of my time to this fight, but I try to dedicate as much time as I can to it. So we're very mm -hmm. fortunate that that I can go out and I can travel and I can talk to kids. And that's where I really feel like I'm making the biggest difference. Being at the White House, meeting with senators, meeting with legislators, you know, meeting with Congress uh, men and women, that's all been very nice. Being on, on television, spreading education awareness. I do everything that I do, not on a foundation of ego, but I do it from a foundation of love, of just wanting to save as many children as possible. Nothing brings me more, um, how should I say this? Nothing brings me, I, I can't use the word happiness because, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not happy to do it, but being inside on a gymnasium in front of 1,600, 2,000, 2,500 students, right? Showing dead on arrival, followed up, followed up by a PowerPoint presentation and seeing their reaction to this and having them come up to me and hugging me and we're so sorry for your loss and thank you for what you're doing. I had no idea that this was a problem. Now I understand that my son was, or my friend wasn't a drug addict, that he was poisoned, et cetera, et cetera. Not to diminish people who have substance use, but people understand, people get it. They, they Again, dead on arrival is the most powerful tool out there. We've been told many times, not only, not because, again, not from a, uh, a foundation of ego or anything like that, but we've been told by many organizations the Drug Enforcement Administration, we have a, a, a memorandum of agreement with, they've used it as well. And they're telling us that there's nothing more powerful in the nation right now that explains perfectly of what is happening in our communities. So we're running with it. We grabbed this documentary. We're showing it in high schools. <clears throat> Lost Voices of Awareness. I partnered up with Andrea Thomas. Uh, we founded uh, FacingFentanylNow.org, which is an umbrella type of foundation that brings up all of these other organizations. You should look at that, Dr. Lev. It's, it's very powerful. We've come up with a toolkit. I have to give all the credit to Andrea Thomas, a parent 
teacher toolkit, which is going to come in a box, which is going to come with uh, Cluxado, uh, which is uh, it's Narcan, but it's instead of four milligrams, it's eight milligrams. Uh, we've been talking with them. They've been talking with us. So we've been I have like boxes and boxes of that stuff here. Nice. Uh, and also it comes with QR codes with uh, education and it comes with the QR code to our website to stop the void where the people can watch the documentary. And it also comes with uh, like a cloth to put over someone's mouth. Like you, you should, if you have to do mouth to mouth, you shouldn't have contact with that person's mouth because you yourself can be uh, tainted with it or, or with the fentanyl. So it's a beautiful toolkit that's coming together. We're going to donate uh, these at first to high schools that ask us for it because there are a lot of, again, there's no drug education in the high schools right now, none whatsoever. It's yeah. It's and so, so we're giving these out to the high schools that ask us for it, and uh, and we're just going to continue plugging away until one day I can just like say, you know what, I think we made the difference that we needed to make, and I could resign from the board of directors of Void, and I could uh, truly grieve the loss of my son with my wife, and and just. Uh, take it all in and and get on with my life. Yeah. By, by the way, there there are no cases of overdoses from people doing CPR. So I just want Oh, good. Thank you. people to know that and also if uh if you run into anybody who needs a prescription for naloxone, people should have that. Frankly, it should be over the counter. Um but that's why I offer a free prescription on my website um if anybody needs one, no questions asked. Um, that that's available for free for free. That's fantastic. It, it should be over the counter. And if it's not, then I'll give a prescription for free. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. And you're doing a lot of great work yourself, Dr. Left. Thank you for yeah. that. Well, it's a team and well, I do what I do because of you. Um, and, and, um, and like Charles, uh, Seamus and, and other parents, I believe in the power. I, I have four children myself. I, um, and, uh, I agree with your sentiments and, and you, you have, uh, I've seen it with the opioid prescription epidemic. It's the parents who, uh, showed me the way, way before, um, the academicians or the government has. Um, so I've, I've learned that and, uh, I, I, you know, I, you do have power and keep keep using it. We will continue doing what we do. I have not had the pleasure of meeting Charles yet. I don't think I've met his beautiful wife, Julie. I consider her a friend. She's I know she's working hard also. And Charles is probably working very well. I know they're both working very hard to do something in the communities as well. Um, the beautiful thing about this toolkit now is that this is going to be given also to uh, affected families, and it, it's it's a stop, it's a conversation starter for them to get into the high schools, to being able to present our documentary, and these life saving measures that we have in this toolkit as well. And so we're hopefully that it's going to expand our messaging because I again I don't think that we're going to be able to arrest our way out of this problem as much as I would love to. Uh, and we can't completely treat our way out of it either. Well, fentanyl changes everything, doesn't it, right. Dr. Leff? Yeah. Fentanyl, yeah, I think it's, fentanyl. It's, you can't arrest our way out. We can't treat our way out. It's a multi-pronged approach. But if you look at any outbreak, um, whether it's COVID or um, tobacco use it's or prescription drug abuse, the way the, way the, the uh, problem ended in a public health matter is front end. 
It's supply and prevention. Um, not that a whole uh, approach is not important. It is. You know, there's a role for harm reduction and treatment and, and everything. But if we really want an end, um, that's how you get there. Well, I was included on to uh, Dr. David Asher uh, wrote an op-ed in the New York Post and 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 I was added to it. And, uh, and it was basically what we could do as a government uh, to abate these drug deaths. And there's some very great recommendations in there. And I, I wish the government would follow suit. And unfortunately, you know, you know, this isn't a Republican problem. This isn't a Democrat problem. This is an American problem. Why isn't fentanyl so prevalent or so pervasive in Europe? I mean, I gave a conference in San Diego in Spanish and seven um, law enforcement officers from Tijuana came to the conference and they told me that they didn't have a fentanyl problem in Tijuana. They didn't have anybody dying in Tijuana due to fentanyl. It's in, it's, it's, it's fentanyl is here in the United States and it's in Canada and it's a crisis like never before. I think more so than the opioid uh, uh, crisis that we had at the turn of the 19th century, more so than uh, uh, heroin in the 70s or the crack cocaine in the 80s and 90s. Fentanyl changes absolutely everything and our drug policies, the policies our government's response to this is like they've been caught with their pants down and they don't know what to do. And what they are doing is they're trying to go at it through the old paradigm. They don't understand that this is something completely new. And unfortunately, looking at it through the lens, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to get political, but looking at it through the lens of racial justice or social justice or incarceration reform is also not the way of looking at this. Where you know, it, it, it's, Again, fentanyl changes everything, but for fentanyl, our children would still be alive today. Therefore, we need a very strong government response to this crisis. You know, when COVID broke out, everybody knew that they had to wash their hands and put a mask over their, over their face within the first day or two days. And we were bombarded every day with information about this. Why isn't that happening? And why do Good you- Good question. Not okay. Again, because we have ways of dealing with an infectious disease, right? We have protocols that have been working for, you know, hundreds of years and we have a system to do that. That's my point is if we applied that same thing, if I got a bulletin uh, about fentanyl like I do about monkeypox, um, we would be in a, we would have better awareness and prevention and you treatment. Go you go to the CD's website and you have to dig for it. You have to dig for the information. Yeah, it's a different it's a different office of public health that deals with it, and their the approach is a behavioral health approach instead of like the infectious disease approach. Correct. You just hit the nail on the button. You just said it perfectly. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so how do we get you hired by them? I mean, seriously, <laughs> hey, that whole department. I'm serious. I mean. They really, truly don't know what they're doing. And from what I understand, we're only in October and there's already been more than 80,000 deaths. What, what I realize is when I talk to people, everybody's heart is in the right place, but everybody concentrates on what they know. So if they see only people who have an opiate use disorder, then their mind just goes 
treatment. If they see little kids, their mind is just, you know, prevention. And you really have to realize that there's a broad population um, and there is role for each one of these approaches. <clears throat> but if we want to like end this, I think it needs to be a public health approach. We need to cut the supply and heavy on prevention of all drugs of abuse, including marijuana, alcohol, tobacco, vaping, everything. I haven't met anybody who died from fentanyl that didn't at one point in their life try marijuana. So I always bring that up um, because I see that connection clinically. Well, and, and then, and here in California that we have legal cannabis due to the overregulated cannabis industry in California, a lot of people are going to black market cannabis. And there's been some rumors out there also of somehow fentanyl getting into uh, cannabis gummies and things like that. And, and we, we haven't seen that in California. There's, there were some outbreaks um, reported, I think, in Michigan public health. But, but In Georgia, I believe, there was like six there. And then there was one possible one in, in San Luis Obispo. But I right. think it was. But it goes to the premise that there is no safe drug supply. Right. But then how do you go to a kid and say, you just can't do drugs? Because I remember back in the 80s and we would see these films in our health classes. I go and they would. And I, but the way the way you do it and there's a whole there there's a, a whole science called prevention science on how to prevent that, how to do just that. And um, if you. And I'm not an expert, but I'm going to have podcasts about this because I think it's fascinating because there is a science to it. And the fact is most kids don't use drugs. Most kids don't use drugs. And you emphasize that positive instead of the negative, like, oh, my God, another death, another death. And instead of, you know, focusing that, which makes it seem like most kids do drugs, most kids don't. Most kids don't use marijuana. Most kids don't binge on alcohol. Most kids don't take pills. And, um, you know, there is a message that, you know, that fentanyl is lethal, just like you're saying. But to praise the good behavior, especially starting yes. upstream. Yes. You know, starting upstream, there's there's a, uh, and then again, I'm going to have a podcast on this because there is a whole science to prevention science and, and we don't have enough of that. That's what I think we need to end this problem is put in prevention science into public education. That and we need to teach til children coping skills. Yeah. Which is part of that prevention science, right? Part of that prevention if science. You have, you know, good, good, you know, yeah, uh, family, friends, you know, right. exactly. school education. There is not a biological tendency to use drugs. There isn't. There's a bio. People say, oh, people, kids will have sex. There's a biological drive to having sex. There's not a biological drive to use drugs. Um, Even if you have addiction in your family or or mental. No, yes, there is a genetic disposition for some people for definitely there's a gene that we found for alcohol there's a group of genes related to cannabis use disorder so yes that's absolute that's there but the general basic biological drive like for procreation doesn't exist for drugs right you, um, I um right so we 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 can't we'll never get to zero people say oh we want to get to zero that's not realistic but you know um but 70,000 yeah. people dying a year from fentanyl, that's unacceptable. That's not normal. It's not normal. It's right. not normal. That's like you said, that's an American problem. 
It's an American. Um, we're being we're being targeted, and that's not okay. Do you feel that? Do you feel like we're being targeted? Do you feel like do, do we see these deaths in other countries? No. Right. Um, there's a friend of mine who, uh, and it's actually my bo uh, bolster what you're saying is a friend of mine. His name is Ed Kobilis is being interviewed this weekend by a South Korean news uh, team. They're telling him that now South Korea is being uh, affected by fentanyl. I've never heard of that before. And then, so who is South Korea's enemy? <laughs> you know, right? Maybe I mean it, it probably is like a rich country yeah. problem where we have money um, to spend on drugs, and so you know this. And but it's always been that way. I mean, we've always, always been, been we've always been a society that has everything. Even though our most poorest are, are are living much better than the most poor in India. Yeah. Or, or or in other countries, you know, I mean, they all have flat screen TV. I, I don't want to go down that bunny rabbit, that hole, but. So Jaime, what is, what's your message to our hard truth listeners? Be aware of what you're doing. Only take pills that have been prescribed to you by a doctor that comes out of a pill dispenser that has been, has your name on it. Do not accept anything from anybody. If you are a parent, uh, make sure that you tell your kids that that phone is not theirs, that you're lending them that phone. You're the one who's paying that bill. You're the one who has it for them for communication purposes. Make sure that they don't have Snapchat on there. Uh, I just think it's one of the most nefarious apps out there. Uh, have conversations with your children. Have dinner with your children. Listen to your children. Be empathetic with your children. Right now, I feel it's probably one of the most perilous times to being a teenager in our society in many, many years for all of the harms that are out there and all of the dangers and all of the stuff that's going on on, on social media. It's not only drugs, pedophilia, uh, bullying, uh, self-harm, et cetera, et cetera, and the list goes on. And please go to our website, stopthevoid.org, watch the documentary, sit down with your teens, your kids, watch the documentary, have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with them, and be extra vigilant with your children. Thank you, Jaime. And I want to say thank you to Charles Seamus. Uh, may the memory of Tyler be a blessing. And thank you, Charles, and your um, lovely wife, Julie, for the wonderful work that you're doing. Absolutely. Um, especially partnership with me. They partnered with me on SB865 on the, on the, uh, the fentanyl proud. testing. Very yeah. proud. Very excited very, about that. Very proud. Yes. And Jaime, thank you. May the memory of Daniel, and I know it is, be a blessing uh, to you and for all the good work that you're doing. Um, you're the reason for um, this podcast and for the whole mission for high truths and saving lives from addiction. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Liff. Bless you and bless you all that you do. Thank you. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaacone.org 
iasic1.org to view their medical library translated for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Thank you.